Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. great to be here for a lot of reasons. I think I met David and um, Michael and Aaron Nequist, actually, about seven years ago. We were all at this um, thing in Connecticut, and I didn't know who any of them were, but they've turned out to be incredible relationships for me over those past years, getting to know them, and have heard so much about you all as a community, and so grateful to be here. They told me that I had 25 minutes and I told them, I am black and from Texas, so good luck with that. <laughs> uh, and we will just see how things go. Um, as we open up the scriptures together, let's ask God's blessing. Creator God, we're grateful to be in this space with people who you have sought, who you love. And we ask God that you continue to give us a vision of who you are and who we are because you have loved us so fully and deeply. And in this very busy and hectic and harried time of year, that you would continue to speak to us, Lord, in ways that we would see, know, and understand. That when we leave here, God, we will be changed people because we have had a genuine encounter with you. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching that everything said here be from you and because of you and pointing us toward you. Lord, as we partner together with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of, one of my good friends who I also went to undergrad with at Abilene Christian University there in Abilene, Texas, um, is now the director of a large counseling center um, right at the edge of Texas A&M University. And so whenever I have a question about human behavior, whether it's mine or someone in my family, someone that I'm working with, I kind of call him, and his name is Sean, too, and we talk about what's going on and maybe some things that I'm, I'm missing. And he said something to me a couple years ago that has always stayed with me, and I had different language around it, but the way he said it was so clarifying for me. He said, you have to remember that all behavior makes sense in context, right? And so that for me as a, was like the scales falling from my eyes because you've had this experience, right, where there is someone that you don't know exactly what they're doing or why they're doing what they're doing, and it doesn't seem to make any sense to you, and then you find out this little piece of information that you didn't know before, and suddenly it all makes sense. Like I had this roommate in college who we lived, the six of us lived in these two houses, this duplex right next to each other, and he was very concerned about grades, and the rest of us were not at all concerned 
about grades, and he was concerned about where he was going to go to medical school, and he he was a hypochondriac, really, and something was always the problem, and he was concerned about cleanliness in our house, and none of us were concerned about cleanliness in our house. But then graduation day came along, and his mom came over with all of our other parents to have lunch. We made this huge lunch for all of our parents, and his mom walked in the house, and she had been there about five minutes, and suddenly everything made sense. And I, I experienced this with couples where I do perform their weddings, they have to go through uh, a thing called prepare with me, and we talk about all of the things that come up in marriage, things you're going to have to deal with that are universal and particular to your relationship. And every now and then, I have a couple where it's one of the fiancés, I just don't get, I can tell that there's something about them that their fiancé doesn't get too. And then we get to the rehearsal dinner where all of the family is there. And it's like, now I see what you were talking about. And so one of the things that's just part of who we are as a people, what what you want other people to understand about you, and what we need to understand about the folks who come into our sphere, is that you don't know anyone until you know their story until you have a sense of what led them to these places and why they do and say and think all of the things that they do and say and think. And while I am not terribly old, I've been around long enough and I've been around the church long enough that unlike any time in my lifetime, there are more and more people who speak publicly about Jesus or with the name of Jesus on their lips when they speak publicly or what they call Christian who seem to know less and less about the Jesus story. And most of them, what they know are two things. They know that Jesus was born, and so this time of year is really important to them. And they know that Jesus, somewhere along the path, died. And what they really believe is that the only things that matter about Jesus is that he, were, he was born and that he died. It's what Dallas Willard calls vampire Christians who need Jesus for his blood and nothing else. And what happens is that the actual story of Jesus, who Jesus is, doesn't just, doesn't just get marginalized. It gets omitted. And so when they say and think and do certain things in and around our world, and your retort, my retort, is like, that doesn't sound really Jesus-y. Well, the reason it doesn't look like Jesus or sound like Jesus or feel like Jesus is because people have lost the story of who Jesus is. And you don't know anyone unless you know their story. And, and yeah, you've had those conversations over dinner in coffee shops, maybe on Facebook with people who know the name of Jesus, but don't actually know Jesus. Because you don't know anyone until you know their story. And, and so at Ecclesia every year at our home church, we participate in this thing called Advent Conspiracy, 
where we raise funds to drill clean water wells around the world. And graciously and thankfully, Michael and David and your congregation have said, we want, we want to know more about that and participate in that. And one of the things that we're trying desperately to do is recapture not just Advent, but the story of Jesus. And so this time of year, Advent, which, which means coming, is the beginning of the Christian year. And it's the time that people throughout centuries have re-entered into the story of Jesus and what that means for us as individuals and couples and families in our workplaces, our homes, our schools. And so I want to spend some time talking about the story of Jesus and how that story begins, particularly from the Gospel of Matthew. Because Matthew begins his Gospel in a way that none of us would. Like if someone came up to you and asked you, hey, tell me what Christmas is about, tell me what Advent's about, tell me about the beginning of Jesus' life, you would not do what Matthew does. Matthew begins in the most boring way humanly possible to tell this story. What you would do, you would give some version of the story that's in the nativity set that you set out at home. Like there would be shepherds and a manger and probably something like a barn, even though that's totally wrong. We can talk about that some other time. (laughs) You would talk about innkeepers who never existed, but that's another story that we could talk about some other time. But that's the story that you would tell. That's not the story that Matthew tells. Matthew begins with a list of names. A list of names, most of which you don't know, most of which you don't care to know. But there it is. This is how Matthew begins his gospel. He says, this is the family history, the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed, the coming king. You will see in this history that Jesus is descended from King David and that he is also descended from Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and Judah's 11 brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And Perez and Zerah's mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. And Boaz's mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed. His mother was Ruth, a Moabite woman who converted to the Hebrew faith. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, who was the the king of the nation of Israel. David was the father of Solomon. His mother was Bathsheba. And she was married to a man named Uriah. Solomon was a father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a father of Abijah. Abijah was a father of Asa. Asa was a father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a father of Joram. Joram was a father of Uzziah. Uzziah was a father of Jotham. Jotham was a father of Ahaz. Ahaz was a father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a father of Manasseh. Manasseh was a father of Amon. Amon was a father of Josiah. Josiah was a father of Jeconiah. And his brothers and Josiah's family lived at the time. when God's chosen people of Israel were deported from the promised land to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah had a son, Sheatiel. Sheatiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abu. Abu was the father of Elikim. Elikim was the father of Azar. Azar was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. I went to school for this, people. <laughs> Jacob was the father of Joseph, who married a woman named Mary. It was Mary who gave birth to Jesus, and it is Jesus who is the Savior, the Anointed One. 
Now, wasn't that exciting? You were just like on the edge of your seat the whole time, thinking, I wish I knew more about that Aminadab guy. That sounds like a name. Just a list of names. Names that don't mean hardly anything to you. And there are a couple in there that you get. You've seen before. You've seen David and Solomon. But Matthew does something weird in this list of names. Because in the ancient world, if you wanted to prove who you were, things like this genealogy in the, in the time of kings and kingdoms was really important. So if, if you were a Jew and you wanted to make sure that everyone knew that you were of Jewish descent, like you needed to prove this unbroken line all the way up to Abraham. And if you wanted to serve your community as a priest, you needed to prove this unbroken line all the way back up to Aaron, who is Moses' brother. And if you wanted to say that you were in the royal family, you were a kingly family, you needed to prove this unbroken line all the way back to David. And that's part of what Matthew's doing, that, that Jesus is the Jew of all Jews, and he is the high priest. And yes, that Jesus is king. Matthew said it long before Kanye got around to it. But Matthew does something that no one else would do. Matthew includes the names of five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife, and Mary. Five women. And the reason that no one else would do this is because in the ancient world, women had no standing. Women couldn't own property. As a matter of fact, for her entire life, a woman was either the property of her father or of her husband. They couldn't testify in court. A daily form of Jewish prayer, Jewish men would go to the temple and they would thank God for not making them a Gentile, a slave or a woman, but there they are, five women in the genealogy of Jesus, and five women who gave birth to sons under very suspicious circumstances. And the first is Tamar. And to understand Tamar's story, you have to go before Tamar to a man named Judah. And you will find Judah and Tamar's story in Genesis 38. And Judah is a Jewish man who leaves his home, and he goes off to another country, and he finds a foreign wife there. And the two of them get married, and they give birth to a son named Ur, and then a second son named Onan and a third son named Shelah. And as those boys get to be a little bit older, Judah goes on a wife hunt for his oldest son. And he comes back with a woman named Tamar. But Genesis tells us that Ur is exceedingly wicked. And he dies almost immediately. 
Well, in keeping with custom, Judah marries Tamar to his second son, Onan. And Onan has one job, which is to give Tamar a son, an heir. But Onan doesn't want to do that. And so Onan does all of the stuff that should do that, except the final part of what should do that. And Onan is basically abusing Tamar. He's using her for his own ends and not keeping up his end of the deal. And so he dies. And Judah looks at Tamar and he says, you know, my third son is really too young to get married. So keep on your widow's clothes and I'm going to send you back to your father. And you live there. And when my third son is old enough, you can marry him. And she does. And time keeps ticking forward and forward and forward. And Tamar's not getting any younger. And she remembers. She says, I remember Shelah was only so old when I left. He should be old enough now. But in the meantime, Judah suffers a tragedy. And his wife dies. And after a period of mourning, he takes off his mourning clothes. And he and a good friend of his, they go on a business trip to the big city. And Tamar hears about this. And so she takes off her widow's clothes, puts on a veil, and regular day clothes, and she goes to the city. And she meets Judah, and Judah has no idea who she is. He thinks She's a prostitute. And so Judah says, hey, um, let's do prostitute stuff together. And Tamar says, well, what are you going to pay me for that? And Judah says, how about a goat, which apparently was the going rate. And Tamar says, it doesn't look like you got a goat with you. Judah says, well, maybe there's something I have with me that I can give you. Tamar, how about your signet, which is this small impression that served as identification, and your walking staff? Judah says, deal. Well, they go off and do their stuff and then both go home and Judah wakes up one day and says to his friend, hey, um, I need you to go back to the city and take this goat because I owe this woman this goat. Can you do that for me? He says, yeah. And he goes back. He makes a return trip. And he starts looking around, and he can't find her. And so he starts asking around the town, hey, have you seen? Do you know she was over here? He eventually goes to the elders of the town, and he says, hey, I've got this goat for the temple prostitute. Um, Where is she? What are you talking about? We don't have a temple prostitute here. Well, he rounds up his goat and heads back home. Gets there, he tells Judah, I looked everywhere for her. We couldn't find her. Brought back the goat. And Judah says, well, 
I guess we did all that we could do. I tried to hold up my end of the deal. And then, oh, by the way, something you should know. There have been reports that your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's been promiscuous. And the evidence that she's been promiscuous is that she's pregnant. But Judah says, <laughs> well, we can't have that. Round up some guys. Go find Tamar. Tell her that she's been unrighteous. Have her brought out and burned. So they mount up and they go and find Tamar. They said, you've been unrighteous and now you're going to be burned. And Tamar says, not so fast. Because the person, the father of this child, these things belong to him. Now they go and report back to Judah. Here's your staff. Here's your signet. Judah tells his guys, go get Tamar. Bring her here to live with us because she has been more righteous than I have. And I love that story. Not only because it's like one of the few stories that keeps junior high boys interested in the Bible, but I just love that story. Because in it, I begin to see who it is that Jesus is. And there's so much to learn at this time of the year and moving forward about what Jesus was up to and why his story matters. And one of the first things that's evident in this is that for Jesus, the excluded are included. Like women in the ancient world lived with zero options. What's Tamar supposed to do? She's had two men in the same family, both died, neither one because of anything that she did. She's excluded, she's alone, she's sent back home to live with her father in disgrace, and she is a foreign woman who's had multiple husbands. And in that story, you can hear the distant echoes of Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman by a well who's there in the middle of the day because none of the other women want to be seen with her. And she is a foreigner, and she has had five husbands. What kind of tragedy delivers to you five dead spouses? in a world where you can't pick and choose who you marry or whether you're going to stay in a marriage? That Jesus sees people who are excluded and rejected. My grandmother had three husbands. She buried three husbands. And Jesus comes from a people who have been excluded and rejected and isolated. And it is no wonder then 
that he spends so much of his time with people who are excluded and rejected and isolated. And that's not a story you get if you just need Jesus for his blood and not much of anything else. That when it comes to living and being as Jesus lived and was in the world, it is to center our lives and attention around the people who are excluded and rejected and isolated. I think we also see in Jesus that the vulnerable are protected. Tamar marries Ur, he dies. Onan dies. There's one brother left. And if you think that being married off to the next brother after your husband dies is weird, you're right and you should. Because I have a brother and neither one of us has sons. And if I or he died, I think our wives would find it really weird if they were to have to marry the other. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't happen at all. But in the ancient world, this is how property was handled. This is how names were passed down. This is all codified in Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25 puts it this way. It says, when two brothers are living together, sharing family property that hasn't been divided, if one of them dies leaving a widow without sons, his widow must not be married to a man outside the family. The brother should marry his sister-in-law and try to have children with her in his brother's name. Moses said, her firstborn son will be named after the brother who died so that the first husband's name will not disappear from Israel and that son will receive his share of the family inheritance. If a man doesn't want to marry his brother's widow, she should go to the elders at the city gate and make a formal complaint. My husband died and his brother refuses to keep his name alive in Israel. He won't marry me and give me children. The elders of his city will send for him and try to persuade him. He may resist and say, I don't want to marry her. In that case, the widow will come up to him with the elders looking on and pull one of his sandals off his foot, spit in his face, and then say, if a man won't make sure his brother's family line continues, he deserves this kind of disgrace for not continuing his brother's house. From then on, throughout Israel, his family will be known as the house with the missing sandal, and they'll all be disgraced. That is some serious ancient shade throwing right there. <laughs> you, you don't want to be from the house of the missing sandal. But what is Tamar supposed to do? Like her father isn't going to live forever. There's no husband and no sons. The only thing looking forward for her is poverty and destitution or maybe to actually embrace occupations like prostitution. Tamar is marginalized and estranged and under threat of death from men with ill intent. Ur was wicked, Onan disobeyed, And Judah has disobeyed the law, too. And so it's no wonder that when Jesus is brought a woman who has been caught in adultery with no other man present, that Jesus knows exactly what's going on here. 
that you have taken a vulnerable person and you have limited her options, not because of what she has done, but because of who you are. When Jesus teaches and walks the earth, he's not just making things up as he goes. Like there is a story to be inhabited and to live in all of us. And in the end, Judah comes to know what we all know, that Tamar is more righteous than he is. And I think we also discover what good fathers give. Judah is like all fathers. He loves his kids. Er married Tamar, and he died. Onan married Tamar, and he died. I don't think there's anything worse a parent can imagine than to bury a child. And Judah has buried two. And he thinks he knows a black widow when he sees one. She's not getting his third son. And this is what's amazing about God. For where God has so many children, and for all of them, he's not willing to give up his last remaining one but his very first one. And that's why Advent's important. And that's why we as a community, and you as a community, participate in Advent conspiracy. To reconnect ourselves with a story that is fundamentally not about exchanging gifts, but receiving gifts and then giving gifts, that we are called to be fundamentally and foundationally people who give. Give our treasure and give when it hurts. Because this is what God has done for us. That good fathers, good fathers are willing to emulate their God and to give both out of their joy and out of their pain. And so may it be for you in this Advent season, as you embrace the story of Jesus, that you will remember that it is a story where the excluded are included, the vulnerable are protected because a good father has given. Let me pray for you. God, would you inhabit us with the story of Jesus in ways that we could not anticipate or expect that renew our life and vitality in who you are? God, that you would recapture us with the beauty of life in you 
And as we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world this season, that we would be released as people to live out all of that story in our schools and workplaces, with our friends and family, in the places where we serve and love. We thank you, God, for who you are, and may we ever rejoice in you. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.